joy to sing to our great God this morning. And thank you for remaining standing. We'll read from our text today. And may I say your singing was beautiful. Just to hear the voices of the people of God. It's so encouraging. Beautiful, beautiful. And I appreciate it especially just because I've been struggling with my voice lately. I went to the doctor this week. I might have a little vocal cord damage. And I think it's, well, I'm yelling all the time. I'm yelling from the pulpit. I'm yelling to my kids, yelling to my, they're just kidding. I'm not yelling at home. I don't think. But, but um, I love to sing loud. And I think I've hurt my throat a little bit. So it was hard to not sing as loud as I want to. So thank you for singing loudly to the Lord this morning. And our key text that we're looking at this morning, among many others, and we're not going to dive as deep into this particular passage, but it's setting up really this theme of family for us today, is Galatians 4, 4 through 7, and hear the word of God. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And this is the word of the living God. May he write its truths on our heart and let us pray again. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great word to us this morning that we, by the work of Jesus Christ, because of his person, his perfect person, are sons of the Father, children of the Father. And I pray, God, that that would lead into a dynamic and beautiful church family life. So I pray, God, you'd open up our hearts and understanding to things that are important to us as a specific local church, God. And just help me today to communicate in such a way that your people would be challenged and encouraged and blessed. So we give you glory, glory, and we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please have a seat once again. And hopefully you got your notes. Uh, you can pull those out. And um, today we're talking about our third core value, which is family. So we, we have been saying our mission statement as a church is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations, and that is the mission of the church in general, and that's the mission of our church. We don't have to make it up. Jesus gave it to us, and so we come to him today wanting to follow his mission. Um, and then uh, uh, today, you know, well, we start off talking about worship and how all of life is worship, and then the particular blessing of coming to worship God together as family, uh, gathering together as worshipers. We also last week talked about the gospel and how the good news of Jesus Christ, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and uh, how, how that changes and transforms us at the core of our being, who we are. It really makes us, it brings us our identity. And today, we talk about family. And the main idea is that as members of God's family, we love God and love one another. When we think about the passage that is before us this morning with Galatians, that uh, in chapter 4, verse 6, tells us that 
that God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. So the Father sends the Spirit of the Son into our hearts where we cry. We have a cry, a particular cry. I've heard and read different studies that have said that all babies have a distinct cry. And there's been studies done that show how even babies in different countries, based upon their language that they are born into, if you will, they have a distinct cry, and it, and it separates them from every, every other baby in the world. You moms probably don't have to have a study for that. You just know that, right? You know the cry of your children. And so there's a cry of the Christian. The cry of the heart of the Christian, having been adopted into the family of God, secured by the Spirit of God, through the work of the Son of God, cries out, Father, Abba, Dad, Abba, Father. It's a term of endearment that we're going to see before us this morning. This truth that we're no longer slaves, but sons. And if we're a son, then an heir through God. Let me say this before, just to set the stage. Don't get thrown off, ladies, about this use of son language that Paul uses. It's used purposefully. Because of the ancient culture that it was rooted in, the son was the heir. And so it's beautiful because in the New Testament, God gives that position of sonship to all of us. doesn't matter what, male or female, Greek or Jew, it doesn't matter. We're all made into sons of God, which means we have the inheritance of the Father. So we'll talk more about that today throughout our time together. But three questions we're going to look at this morning are... What does it mean to be God's family? Secondly, why would we not experience family in the church? And thirdly, how can we live together as a church family? Very important uh, for us to understand what's before us this morning. So let's start with point number one. What does it mean to be God's family? Well, we have to start at the beginning. Because God himself is Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God. And so within himself, God is is the essence of perfect community. He is eternally perfect community within himself. He is, in essence, you could say, the the perfect eternal family in himself. There's no need. A lot of times people have taught, and I've heard this taught, that, well, God created humanity as if he was lonely, and he, he needed to interact with with some other beings. And that's why he created man in his image. That's not the case. He was eternally and perfectly satisfied within himself with the perfect community of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the love that they shared within the eternal trinity. And yet in love, and for some very amazing purposes, to to display the glory of who he is and, and his own being, he creates and so as we look at what it means to be God's family, we've got to start at the very beginning using this great worldview um, understanding and the summary of, of life that we learned a few months back, creation, fall, and redemption. It starts in creation, where God, in, in Genesis chapter 1, creates the world, and then in verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, the Imago Dei, the, this stamp of God himself and his being and his person that's put upon us as human beings, created in the image of God. Creatures, not creators, but yet we also have a sense of creativity because we are patterned after, if you will, the image of 
God himself. We're made to reflect that image. We're made to exemplify that image and to, to, ref, to shine to, to, to all of creation in worship of God, that image that he's placed in man. That's how he created man. He said, let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And it's interesting. We're going to study this much more beginning in February because we're going to start a study of the book of Genesis. Not the whole thing because that would take us about 10 years, but we're going to go through chapters 1 through 11. That should take us through most of this year. And I'm so excited about looking into Genesis together with you over these coming months. So we won't dive deeply as we will here in a few weeks, but understand this, that in Genesis 2, God had created the world. He said it all, it's all good. Everything is good. Everything is right. Everything is in its place. Everything is just the way he wanted it to be. But there was still something in Adam, who was the only human being at that time, that was not good. He said, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Not good that he should be alone, so I'll make a helper fit for him. And that's, that's not, that, that, that certainly has effects that we'll talk about in the coming months, but I believe it's also a, a statement of, of all of humanity. The truth of humanity, of who we are, that we were created for community. We were created for fellowship, for a sharing of our lives with, with others. And so God, in his infinite goodness, creates Eve, and therefore the rest of all of us come down from that line. And that still hasn't changed in us. Because we are made in the image of God, we, are, we long for community. We long for relationships. We have been created as relational beings. But there is a problem in our relationships, isn't there? We know what happens in Genesis 3 is the fall. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fall. And upon the fall and upon the entrance of sin into the world, the world is ruined. The curse is put upon the world, all of the earth. It, it, it impacts everything. Sin destroys everything. And all the way up till the Apostle Paul can look back and understand that since then, throughout all of history, there is no distinction, according to Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us will struggle in, in multiple areas, but how much more... In, 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 in the area that we were created in, in a big way to exemplify the image of God, which is relationships. It also speaks to the truth of why I believe, I, I really think that the source of our greatest joy in life is also the source of our greatest pain in life, right? And it's what? Look beside you. <laughs> it's people. It's relationships. It's community. Relationships are hard. The struggles, think about it. They, look at your past. Look at the memories you have from the past, the people you shared them with, and, and, the, and, and, and the beautiful times, and yet a lot of times then you can look back and also see some really hard days in those relationships. And so the fall comes and impacts everything. Every horizontal problem, which is, which is this problems that we have in relationships, has vertical roots, it all was impacted in the fall. And because our relationship with God was severed in the fall, the relationships with one another will and are severed. Thus, the need for redemption. Redemption comes in, which is a long process, if you will. 
that God started when? Right at the time where he had just issued the curse. He curses the serpent, and right upon issuing the curse upon the serpent, he immediately begins the work of redemption with the great prophecy that, 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 that there will be the seed of the woman that will be coming that's going to crush your head. You're going to bite him in the heel. He's going to crush your head. The great hope and point right away already to the hope we would have in redemption through Jesus Christ. And so the, the beginning of this long process that, that's worked out by God in his sovereignty throughout human history. We see a few thousand years later after the creation of the world and the entrance of, of sin to the world, we see God do a, a, the, the, this amazing work and we can't cover all of it, but to, to kind of summarize it, he starts with a family. When he really jumps into the work of redemption, he chooses a guy named Abraham for no reason other than he just picked them. You're my guy, and out of you, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to create a family out of you, and your family is going to be a blessing to the world. Genesis 12, we see that the, the beginning of the covenant God makes to Abraham, the promises to Abraham. I'll bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I'll curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We see rising out of Abraham's lineage and the patriarchs comes the nation of Israel. Comes Moses, lawgiver, 1,500 years before Christ. And Israel, according to what God says in Exodus 4.22, it says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. There's a love and affection that God has for His chosen people. And yet we see them not really walking with him too well, right? They were a failure in so many ways. God blessed them 500 years after Moses and brings about the Davidic kingdom, establishes the David, the man after God's own heart upon the throne, gives David the promise that your son, someone from your family line, is, is going to come and rule on your throne forever. David himself failed, and it certainly, that promise wasn't about his son Solomon. That promise was yet to be seen about, about a thousand years later. 500 years into, uh, before the coming of Christ, we see Israel had just completely been decimated in, in the captivity of, of, of the Babylonians. Enter into history the Lord Jesus Christ the true Son of God, the well-pleasing Son of God. God Himself in human flesh coming with His perfect life to be lived. He lives a perfect life. He lays Himself down as a sacrifice for sin, the thing that all the, the prophets had spoken of, the thing that, that the uh, law of Moses had pointed to that all the sacrificial system and the Levitical system pointed to, it all was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, who lived and died a sacrifice of death, who rose from the dead, conquering forever the power of sin and death and Satan and hell for all who believe. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And this gospel transforms. This is why Paul writes to the Galatian church who were struggling with this, 
These, this were a group of uh, Jewish Christians and, and then Gentile Christians, and they're, they're, they're wondering what we should do with this law thing. How do we deal with this? It, it, we're, we're not seeming to be fulfilled with what's going on, and, and we're tempted to go back to the law. We, we're tempted to go back to a, a self-righteousness where, where it's all about our works and our actions, and, and Paul comes down with a hammer to say, no, no, no. Why would you go back to failure? And he points to the fullness of redemption that in verse 4 of our text, when the fullness of time had come at just the right time in history, and God had set it up perfectly, working his plan out through a bunch of failures, he brings perfection himself onto the scene as God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. This is redemption. What's the purpose? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. You see, the gospel has power. There is a gospel power. The gospel is the power of God to transform the human heart to deliver us from our sins, to bring about true forgiveness, true life change from the heart level, not behavior change alone. The behavior flows out of the inside change where God makes us new and different. Gospel power, it's all about who God is. And because of who he is, what he has done transforms things. What has he done? If the gospel power is who God is and what he done what has he done Colossians 1 12 and 14 the father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins think about the blessings that are ours how about Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 1 of Ephesians 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the, the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is who you were. This is the power of God. This is the gospel power that you were dead in your sins. You were apart from God. You were haters of God. You were disobedient. You walked just like the world walked. And you were by nature a child of wrath. Verse 4, some of the greatest words in all of the scripture. But God. But God. That changes everything. It's the turning point in all of our lives. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is good news. This is gospel power. You were this. And now, by, because of God's love and mercy and grace, you're forgiven and saved and redeemed according to 2 Corinthians 5:17 if you are in Christ you are a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come this is who we are new creations you're not who you used to be christian 
And so because of gospel power that comes into our, our hearts and totally transforms us, we struggle because a lot of times we look at our lives and we're thinking, yeah, but I, I don't see what I'm always seeing in the scripture. What's going on here? Understand that gospel power that, that justified you is the same gospel power that is sanctifying you, that is transforming you, that is causing you and leading you and empowering you into being, becoming who you already are. And here's a secret that's kind of challenging to hear. It's a lifetime project. You're never arriving until glory. We're all works in progress. But when we understand the gospel power, then it leads us also to understand that there's gospel purpose. God always has an intention. There's a goal of where he's bringing things, including you and me. If the gospel power is all about who God is and what God has done, gospel purpose is about who we are in Christ and what we are then to do because we are in Christ. You see, the gospel shapes who we are, our, our, ind- our identity, both individual- individually and corporately. We begin to live differently as children of God and ultimately as members of God's family. That's what I want to focus on today. John 1 says that he was in the world, speaking of Christ, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Did I read that too fast? Were you blown away like you should have been? Let me read it again. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God himself. You see, this is such an encouraging word if we can begin to grasp it. You see, the Bible is not an individual-driven self-help book. It's the way our modern society, it's, it's easy for us to try to approach it that way. You know, we're, we're, we're very individualistic in our culture, and, and we have to be cautious because it, it's, it, you know, the, the, sometimes we approach it as if it's all about me and it's all about my individual personal relationship with God. And certainly it includes that, I'm not denying that. That's certainly a beautiful reality. But the Bible wants us in community with God, and in community with one another through restored relationships with Him vertically that then lead to restored relationships within a church family. That's how we set it up, and so it's all about family. And we very quickly summed up a couple thousand years of history, but do you even see how God used, what God used to bring about the family of God was families? The leading into the church, which is a a family of families. It's made up of all different families and peoples and individuals, and yet we are one family. How does this happen? How does this happen? One word I'm going to use that I want to focus in on, and I'd love for you to take some time over this coming week to, to hone in on it, is the word adoption. Adoption. We're reading through Knowing God, many of us together right now, and J.I. Packard 
has a whole chapter called Sons of God. I encourage you to read it. Uh, I forget the chapter number, but it's a little bit towards the end. In that, he starts the chapter off this way. He says, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? It's a great question, right? He says, the question can be answered in many ways. But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God for his father. It's a great answer. So much depth to that answer. Well, what does that mean to have God as our father? What is this doctrine of adoption that we learn from scripture? The Westminster Shorter Catechism explains it very well this way. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Think about that. Adopted into the family of God, the number of God, the people of God. We, we have a right then with all the privileges. That's what John said to those who believe they have this right as, as the children of God, as the sons of God, to all of these great and beautiful privileges. It's amazing what we see in adoption. It's a great book by, written by David Garner called Sons in the Sun. I, it's, a, it's a great read if you want to study this topic a bit deeper. It's fantastic. I'm going to summarize some of what he says in this book here in the next few minutes because I think he did a fantastic job. The word adoption appears only five times in, in the scriptures. But it's, it's rooted in the purpose of God. It's prefigured in the Old Testament as, as we've already looked at. And the theme of, of adoption is woven into the fabric of all of the New Testament. All of the theology that comes in and out of the New Testament. It's a term of, of both privilege and identity. It's a blessing and it marks who we are. It, 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 it introduces the amazing components of what God what Jesus provides for us in salvation, and it expresses who it is that gets to enjoy those blessings, the adopted people of God. I love again Packer with great brevity and depth. He says uh, a three-word summary of the gospel. He says this, the gospel is adoption through propitiation. Adoption through propitiation. And then he exclaims, I do not ever expect to find a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. It's so deep that God's righteous anger, as we just read about in, in the scriptures, his righteous wrath against sinners is fully satisfied by his righteous son's substitutionary death and his vindicating resurrection and his exaltation to the right hand of, of the Father. It's amazing that by divine grace, he absorbs God's wrath in our place and then the Savior turns the Father's face toward us in full forgiveness. The blessing, the priestly blessing from numbers that we pronounce most of the time in our benediction that, that, that God's grace would be upon you, that his face would look upon you, his countenance would be upon you. Understand the reason why that blessing can take place and is a reality for the believer is because we are the children of God. Because he's our adopted, adoptive father. It's a beautiful, wondrous reconciliation. When we think of the doctrines of justification, how we're declared righteous by the work of another, that we stand in the courtroom of, of, of a judge and the judge pronounces guilty and the son 
comes in as our advocate and says, I will defend you. And not only that, I will take your punishment. I receive the wages of your sin upon myself. And I die for you. He rises from the dead. And upon that resurrection, we know that we're fully forgiven. We're we're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And, And listen, if that was all salvation was, that would be so amazing, wouldn't it? To be justified before a holy God. To be forgiven of our sins before a holy God. But like the infomercials, I want to say, but wait, there's more. (laughs) There's a lot more. Don't stop there. Because what happens literally in justification is is the riches of the Father, of of, of the judge, is when the Father gets up from the judgment seat and, and puts the ring on the finger of the condemned and adopts him into his family. It's glorious. Scripture affirms that forgiven sinners do not enter Christ's kingdom as mere paupers. We become royal sons, members of the family of God, siblings of the King of Kings, brothers of whom He is not ashamed, according to Hebrews 2. How glorious is our position. A lot of times you might think, well, I, I, it, because it's only mentioned five times, it's one time in Galatians, one time in Ephesians, three times in Romans, this word adoption, that maybe it's not as important. Oh, but it's mightily important. It's been understood that way throughout history. I think of how John Calvin weaves adoption through his entire magnus work of, of writings with such emphasis that his theology of salvation has actually been described as the gospel of adoption. John Owen, 100 years later, described adoption as the great and fountain, the, excuse me, the great and fountain privilege of salvation in Christ. John Murray, more recently, he labeled adoption, it's the apex of grace and privilege. And it's beautiful that these biblical understandings of salvation are not left in the cosmic courtroom. But they boldly and intimately are taken into the home. Into the fatherly heart of God. Where God is not exclusively judge. He is a gracious father. And the believer stands not merely as an acquitted criminal but as an adopted son. If you look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you see something incredible there. The whole first chapter, actually flip your Bibles over there if you will for a moment. Chapter 1 of Ephesians. We see the great work of redemption as Paul basically explodes with this great praise to God where he, 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 he wants the Ephesians to know the spiritual blessings that are theirs in Christ. And in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We, so we see this, this beginning as he's expressing the glories of redemption that this gospel splendor of how God ordained redemption. God the Father ordains redemption. 
In verse 4 it says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption. For adoption, excuse me, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Verse 7 In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's glorious. We see then as we go into verse 11, we've seen the Father ordained salvation. Then we see the Son in verses 7 through 10 accomplish salvation. And then we see in verses 11 through 14 the Holy Spirit applying the work of salvation. Verse 11, in Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that those who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now we could spend a quite a bit of time just digging into this gold mine that is Ephesians chapter 1. The, the, these first 14 verses are so beautiful, such a beautiful weave of theology of redemption in how it's ordained by the Father, accomplished by the Son, applied by the Holy Spirit. But I want to point out one thing in particular. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. What is the thing that takes center stage in the mind of God before the foundation of the world? He says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in Him. In love, He predestined us for what? For adoption. As sons through Jesus Christ. Think about this. The goal of history is the adoption of God's people. That's the goal of history. Since before the foundation of the world, the plan God puts in place is, I'm going to have a family. It's glorious. It's beautiful. It's one through Jesus Christ, as we saw in Galatians chapter 4. That Christ came and suffered and died for our full and final adoption. Our adoption is sealed by the work of the Holy Spirit who according to Romans 8, verse 14 through 17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. How glorious is this gift of the Holy Spirit, the the seal and the guarantee of our adoption that that makes sure we understand and know that we are the children of God. And if we're children, what do we get? The inheritance. If you're a child, you're an heir. You're a fellow heir with Christ. 
Does that not blow your mind? It should. It, it should make us stop and think like, is that accurate? Is that really what he's saying here? That the Father gives me the same inheritance he gives to his own son, Jesus Christ? How, how glorious is this? How beautiful. I like how Paul adds in there, though, that understand what you have, but then understand it's going to be, over, it's going to be lived out through a lot of suffering. Through suffering, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also be glorified in him. You want the riches of Christ, there's always a, a cross before a crown. And so when we suffer, we shouldn't look at it as if somehow we're, we're, God doesn't love us and care for us. Did he love his own son and care for his own son? Of course he did. So when he loves his own children the same way he loves his own son, those in his adopted family. It's difficult. It really is. It's difficult to overstate adoption's remarkable grace and the glory of it. Um, we, should, we should spend a lot of time diving deep into it, studying it. If you're reading Knowing God, read that chapter and glorify God as you read it. It also identifies our, our identity. It gives us our identity. It tells us who we are. The reason adoption describes justified sinners differently than justification does alone is, is even though it's comparable, it's because of what it's based in, that the idea, again, was Roman imperial adoption. That's what provided the first century context for Paul's use of the term. And I think it's helpful to under, for us to understand his theological interest that, that he's trying to proclaim as we looked at Roman adoption. Again, Roman adoption was practiced especially by emperors. So the emperors would have a sons and, and, and such, and then a lot of times they would have a son who was not a good person. Or, or according to the emperor, thinking this guy's not going to do a good job leading. He doesn't have what it takes, but this guy over here does. And so he would adopt this guy over here, who he believed would be the good emperor, and legally he became, in every way, his son. And he gets all of the rights of the inheritance given to him. Thus he becomes the emperor. And that's the way adoption worked in those old days. Gospel analogy everywhere. Adoption is a great gift. May we not downplay it, but may we understand it. May we understand that, that as forgiven and sanctified saints, that we are adopted sons of God. And as such, we're ordained with royal family privileges, beautiful comforts of stunning glory that are ours in Christ Jesus. That as this vertical relationship is one by the power of the gospel through the person and work of Jesus Christ that, that Jesus reconciles us to the Father. We're adopted by Him, brought into His family. We now have God as Father, which means we now have an inheritance. Now where do we go with that? It should be lived out in everyday life and the, one of the ways we most live it out is the vertical relationship also leads to and defines the horizontal relationships. As we are adopted into the family of God with God as our Father, guess what we also get along with the package? The gift of brothers and sisters. The gift. I hope you see that as a gift. The gift of brothers and sisters. We get a church family. And I 
as we look at our core values of our church, we consider the church as family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. The church is not just a service you attend. It's not just a, a, a building with a steeple and nice windows. It's, it's not an organization within the community. It, it, it's, it's something, not something you just do some of the time, something to add on to the agenda. You don't just go to church. You, you are the church. You are the people of God. That is the biblical understanding. The church is a family with God as Father. The church is the household of God according to 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter 4 and Hebrews 3. Christians are God's children. Christians are brothers and sisters with Jesus. Christians are brothers and sisters with one another. And the way we walk this out as a church family in a local church, and, and, and there is a key factor here for us to grasp, that this if is going to be walked out in a local church environment. Because even though the, the brothers and sisters in China are our brothers sisters and, and we should love them and care for them and pray for them, pray for those who are in chains around the world and such, but we don't know them and I, I, quite honestly there is no opportunity until they come beside me to rub shoulders to rub me wrong, to, to be able to draw out the beauty of the gospel in working out the one another's with that brother or that sister. How do we do it? We do that with those we're in close proximity with and therefore the commands go out in Scripture to do all of these things with one another. That's the, the phrase that's frequently used in the New Testament. It captures in a lot of deep ways the, the ways that Christians are called to relate to one another as a loving family. As a church, what are we called to do with one another? Here's just a few. Be devoted to one another with a true devotion, a commitment. Let us not judge one another, Romans 14. And, and as you listen to this, I want you to also think about what is the opposite of what he's telling us to do here in the Scripture? To be devoted to one another. What's the opposite of that? Because the, the one another's bring community. It brings unity. The opposite destroys community. It will kill community in a church. It will kill love and relationships within a church. Be devoted to one another. Let us not judge one another. Accept one another. Instruct one another care for one another, serve one another in love, bear one another's burdens, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds, keep meeting together and encourage one another, do not slander one another, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, be hospitable to one another, love one another. All of these basically leading us to understand that God is to be at the center of every relationship. And there's going to be work that needs to be done because this is how different lives can come together. Because there's God in the center, there's grace in the center, and when there's God and His grace in the center, these one another's happen, flow out of a, a people who have been transformed by the gospel. And so the scriptures paint the church. They give a reality of, of church life because most of the epistles, for instance, were, were written by the apostles to correct problems within the church, oftentimes relational problems. People at odds and fighting each other. But there's a glorious vision that is painted as well that, 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 that we should be aiming for. It's a vision that, that, that the Bible has is that the local church should be the place where we experience the greatest and the deepest of community, of family life, of love, of care, 
of nurture and encouragement. It gives this picture that God is a, is a great father. He's a great dad, if you will, of a great family. And he loves to bring more and more kids into his family. And we should share that desire with him. That the local church should be this, this growing, rich, healthy, vibrant, loving, exciting family. That's the picture that scripture paints. 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Realizing this magnificent truth should lead us to living out the one another's on a regular daily basis. But oftentimes, and we can point back to the fall as reason, we don't experience that. We don't experience that in the church family. And point two, (coughs) which two and three will be quick, Point one was my long, long point. Point two is why would we not experience family in the church? If this is God's design and if this is God's command and if this is, if this is the reality of who we are, why don't we experience it? And I just listed a few things for you to consider. And they may or may not mark you, but if they do, spend some time this week dealing with the Lord, dealing with your heart. And Lord, am I grasping the part of the role I'm to play in the family of God the way that you want me to. I'll say, firstly, we struggle to believe it, to believe that we're actually the children of God. We struggle to, to well, I, I think that our biggest struggles come from not being convinced of who we really are. We, we're told these things in Scripture, and then we look at our lives, and they don't seem to, be, to match up, and so we give up, and we give in. Instead of trusting the truth of what God says, not what you see. Martin Luther said, if we, are, if we really believed with all our hearts firmly and unflinchingly that the eternal God, creator and ruler of the world, is our Father, with whom we have an everlasting abode as children and heirs, not of this transitory wicked world, but of all God's imperishable, heavenly, and inexpressible treasures, then we would indeed concern ourselves but little with all that the world prizes so highly. Much less would we covet it and strive after it. And that's so true. We're always after other things because we're struggling to believe the truth of who we really are. And a lot of times, that's where faith needs to be exercised. It's, it's like you, you're in a situation where you, you're called to do one of these one another's, right? You're, you're called to encourage one another, and you're like, I need encouragement. Why doesn't someone encourage me? But, well, but encourage one another. Okay, Lord, I don't feel like I can. Well, obey me and just trust me. And then when you walk out such faith, you find encouragement yourself in such things. God begins to move and work, and, and he, he oftentimes delivers us from the very things that we're, we don't think we can get delivered from through acts of obedience of faith. It's beautiful. It's glorious. Well, we struggle to believe it. So what do we do? Believe it. Trust it. Just put your foot down and stand on truth. Secondly, we, we lack knowledge of God. Um, and I'm kind of taking this idea from Packers on my mind so much lately because I've been in this book. But in chapter 2 of Knowing God, he talks about how it's not just knowing about God, but it's knowing God himself. Personally knowing 
God. And then he lists some things about that are true of the people that know God, that actually have this experience of, of knowing him in spirit and in truth. And I kind of take the opposite. And so we may not feel like we're family because we lack knowledge of God himself. And, and when we lack knowledge of God, Packer would say people who know their God have energy for God. I would say well, the true is opposite. It's true. The people who don't know their God lack energy for God. I don't have the energy to go serve someone else because I'm just, I'm out of it. We lack, when we lack knowledge of God, we also have low thoughts of God. We don't see Him as grandiose and beautiful and glorious and great. We view our problems as bigger than Him. Our weaknesses and failures as somehow bigger than Him. There's a lack of boldness for God. And we're not content with God. He's not enough. His word is not enough. We need other things. We lack knowledge of God. Also, our personal story can come in and affect it. We may not experience the family of God like we should because we've had a difficult family history. Sometimes people hear about God as father and they struggle to put it together because maybe they had a bad father and they don't, you know, so those are challenges and those are overcome in community as we learn more about God together. Also, our circumstances, that can affect it, and, and a lot of times that does. I know there's several people not here today because of illness and age. You know, you age, your body is, is hurting. I, I think of Ate Thelma, who, who's back home now. Thelma and Jim are home, and from the Philippines, they were gone for months, and we missed them, and I know they're not here, and I'm imagining, just been praying for her, because this cold weather literally, like, paralyzes her legs. She, 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 it hurt. The pain is too much. She can't walk. She would love nothing than to be here worshiping with us today. It's one of the reasons why we do this camera thing here. I don't care about being broadcast worldwide. I care about those who are ill. My dad's got, is sick at home right now, probably watching live or he'll watch later. And so we, we, we want to be able to provide the truth of God out there to care for people whose circumstances do affect that. And then you have other circumstances. I, I, this is just one of many. I think of age. Age is a factor. Sometimes, a lot of times in churches, unfortunately, you have, generally speaking, you either have old churches. We're not talking about age, a church of a lot of elderly people, or young churches, and they often don't mix. I praise God for the mix that we have here. I'm so grateful for that. But a lot of times you have both of them standing staunch, like, well. I'm not going to do that because I, I, the old people don't want to, those young people just bug me. And then the young people, like, I don't relate to anything in common with the old people. When they don't realize is a family is all ages and they need each other, desperately, deeply. If you're young, you need the older people around you. If you're older, you need the younger people around you. We need each other. We need each other. Why else might we not experience family? There, sometimes we approach things with the wrong paradigm. We look at church, family, not as a family, but as an event or as just another list of the t thing of, of all of the things I'm currently juggling. <laughs> I got my family and my job and my this and all of these and my hobbies and they're all here and eventually you're juggling all these things, you're so busy and life gets so busy, balls are going to drop and one of the easiest balls to drop is church because it's just another thing. Instead of the paradigm of understanding that the relationships are the most important things in our lives, and so our, our families, our marriages, our children, our families, and then our church family are hugely important. And, and we don't put them as importance. And I've seen so many people get hurt 
at, at because of this. I, for instance, I've seen even people from our own church who've moved away to other communities. Nothing wrong with moving away. If God, hopefully he doesn't, but if he leads you to move away, praise his name. But don't move away without knowing there's a solid, good church family community that you're going to. People see it as an item to juggle, and so it's not important. And so they just let the ball drop. Oh, I'll find something. And I've seen, I've seen disaster because they cannot find a church community, a family. And I think that's in many ways what lack of commitment to community is rooted in, is if we don't, if we view the church from the wrong paradigm, it's just another spoke on the wheel. And the truth is, the wheel will still work if one of the spokes is damaged. There's also consumer mentality. We live in the United States of Disneyland, America here. We are the richest nation on earth, and I love our country. I would lay my life down for our great nation, but there's also challenges that we face being consumers. And a lot of times as shoppers, that affects uh, our, our church life. The church is to, here to make disciples, not please consumers. And as consumers, we don't really like that. And so we shy away. There's also a club mentality that comes into play where I want people just like me. That's why you join a club, right? It's like, well, if I join in the, the craft club, it's because there's a bunch of people that, wanna, that like crafting like me, and that's, we're all going to have fun crafting together. I hate craft. I never craft. I would destroy every craft I make, so just using that as an example. But you get the point. We're not a club. We like clubs because they don't meddle in my life. They just deal with the things I like the best, right? Most interested in the golf club. We all golf, and we don't talk about the other stuff. We focus on golf. Where the truth is, true community, true family, as church is, will expose your blind spots. We'll uh, expose the immaturities we have in our lives, and it's uncomfortable, and sometimes we don't like that. It is, sometimes we don't like immature people around. Sometimes we want to be the club that knows everything. All the high theologians, we've got it all figured out. And everybody here knows everything about every verse in the Bible. And we're good. We don't want any newbies coming in. And that's not the heart of God. Actually, I would say a sign of, of mature Christian community is that they have plenty of immature people involved. Because new babies are being born. People are coming in. And the mature know how to deal with it. They're not offended by that and hurt. Um, quickly, many distractions. Uh, we're caught up with other issues. We can, you know, we, our own little pet doctrines that are secondary or third doctrines become the issues that we raise up to the highest issues, and it destroys relationships sometimes. A lot of distractions can we face. Prosperity. Um, the Christians in church, true churches in China, they don't take family for granted. They're church families. Um, they're, sometimes when we're being very prosperous, we can tend to think we have no need. And we're good. I'm good. Um, and that's just a myth. We need each other. There's fear. There's one reason. Why is there fear? Because there's people. And the truth is most people are afraid of other people. We are. That's why we stand in elevators like this. You know, we can't say hi to someone because they're right there. 
<laughs> and that's not very good because the church is in the people business, right? So we struggle as people with people. And, and a lot of times we get hurt, and that's true. How many are married? How many? Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. How many your spouse has hurt you in some way? Look at that. Ah, two hands. <laughs> that's a part of life together, right? And a lot of times in the church family, we think that should never happen. You should never hurt me. And here's the truth. If you hang around me for any season, I'm going to eventually hurt you some way. Because I'm weak and fragile myself. You're going to discover my weaknesses. You're going to be like, <gasps> give me grace, please. And I'll give you grace. That's what family does. But we're fearful. And sometimes it's right. It, it's, it's reasonably so. Because a lot of people have been burned in church. And they have. And um, some Christians, Christians are the best, and sometimes people who claim to be Christians are the absolute worst. And they hurt us. So what do we do, run away from the family? It's the time to dive into the family. And to know love and grace of God. Um, disobedience, sin, that's an easy one. Obviously, we can just refuse to obey what God commands. And then the idol of independence, that's a big one for us. We, we are very independent people and we can let selfishness creep in or hurt that we've had in our hearts creep in. And when those two things come together, it just creates this avoidance of I don't need anyone. Um, and a lot of times we, you know, we think that somehow that's best for us. We, we trust the idol of independence and think that it's going to deliver us from the hurt and the pain when it's actually going to hurt worse. The opposite of love isn't hate. It's self-protection and isolation. Read through 1 Corinthians 13 and look at how, what love is and all the actions that it requires. Here's just a few of them in verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And what does self-protection do and isolation do? The opposite of that. I'm not bearing this anymore. I don't believe you. I don't trust you. I have no hope that this can be fixed. And I'm not enduring. Let's love one another with the 1 Corinthians 13 love. So thirdly, very briefly, how can we live together as a church family? Three things. Keep the gospel the main thing. Keep Jesus in our sights. If we look at the first three core values, I, you know, we can, we can look at worship and gospel, and family, and I, I love alliteration, so I see three B words there. I see we're to behold the glory of God and worship him, and then I see believing the gospel with full hearts and steady hearts, and then belonging to the family. Um, in the midst of difficulties and struggles with that, let's look to verses like Hebrews 12, which is one of my favorite verses probably my favorite in all of scripture because if you've known me any long period of time, you're going to hear me say constantly, keep your eyes on Jesus. Because every time I tell you that, I'm also telling my own heart that. And I say that because that's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, let us run with endurance. Remember, this is written to a group, group a church of Christians who want to give up. They're just done. He says, let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do you do that? Looking to Jesus, 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Was there pain and suffering on his road? You better believe it. How did he get through it? Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see the pattern? Jesus walked the path. Just follow him and keep your eyes on him. Love him and treasure him and keep his gospel the main thing. Secondly, commit to it. How do you keep the life of the church? How do we live together as a church family? Be committed. Like the Christians, the early Christians in Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a beautiful picture of the church. We could spend another hour going through that. I won't. You study it. Look at the way this first church, early church, devoted themselves to the Lord and to one another. It's beautiful. It's glorious. And don't think of the early church somehow as, like, perfect. I already talked about that a little bit, but, you know, I mean, think about it. There were 150 people in the church on the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches, how many souls were saved that day? 3,000. Imagine a church going from 150 to 3,000 people in one day. And you're like, praise the Lord, and so am I. We should praise God. Yes, praise God. But you also understand that was 3,000 more problems. It, that's the reality. 3,000 babies. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> That needed cleaning and changing and growing. Let's not get discouraged at such a thought. Let's rejoice at such a thought and let's commit to helping people grow and be fed and encouraged. This also is, we'll talk next week about mission and reaching out, but one of the beautiful and most greatest ways we can be of a witness to the world is to love one another. This is what Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you are also to love one another. And by this, by your love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so I just want you to think this week, who are you loving in our church family and how? And then who could you love better? What's on my heart? And then thirdly, welcome others into the family. And I say that because a lot of times we have, it can have churches can have a tendency to, to let their love for one another grow so deep that when someone else walks in the door, it's like, you know, if they're not the right type of person or if it's not the right fit or whatever, or they're different than you, God forbid. <laughs> That's a joke, tongue in cheek. They should be. They can be not brought in. And I pray our church would never... We'd never have a complaint about it was clickish or they, they, I couldn't, couldn't dive in and get to know people. I wasn't loved properly. Um, maybe welcome others into the family. That's what Paul tells the Romans. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What a great saying, right? What if that was on your heart every time you came to worship on Sunday? I'm going to welcome one another 
just as Christ has welcomed me. Amen.